This week on The Change Law, we're talking about open source industrial machines. We're joined by Marcin Jakubowski from Open Source Ecology, where they're developing open source industrial machines that can be made for a fraction of commercial costs, and they're sharing the designs online for free. Their goal is to create an efficient open source economy that increases innovation through open collaboration. We talk about what it takes to build a civilization from scratch, their Open Building Institute and their Eco Building Toolkit, the right to repair movement, DIY maker culture, and how Marchin plans to build 10,000 micro factories worldwide where anyone can come and make. Huge thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them. They keep it fast and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Check them out at fastly.com. And our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at launchdarkly.com. This year, we simplified and improved Changelog's infra by replacing Docker Swarm and Terraform with Linode Kubernetes Engine, LKE. Not only is this new setup more cohesive, but deploys are 20% faster, which is awesome. Changelog.com is more resilient with a mean time recovery of just under eight minutes, and interacting with the entire setup is done with a single pane of glass via K9S. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them, they keep it fast, they keep it simple. And the best part, you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com slash changelog or text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com slash changelog. So we are slightly off the beaten path today, but not too far. We're talking open source ecology with Marcin Jakubowski, the executive director of open source ecology. Got to give a thanks to Josh Fong, listener back in July, asked us to have Marcin on the show. And I certainly would not have found this project myself. So thank you, Josh. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Marcin, thanks for coming on the changelog. Yeah. Thanks, Josh, for recommending me. That's great. Yeah, he called you a pioneer in the open source world with your organization. So that's a strong sale. And I went and watched your TED Talk, and it's fascinating stuff. Why don't you just give us the story that you gave in that TED Talk briefly, how you came to do this global village construction set. Really fascinating. I would have liked Innovation Stuntman better, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Innovation Stuntman, yes. Very good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so... What's the story behind the Global Village Construction set, the work that we're doing? It's about creating an open open collaborative paradigm for how we do product development in general. So that's that's the current work we do. And the story started with um, on a ground where after a PhD program, I got PhD in fusion. I was totally alienated from the work that I was doing because I felt I was getting more farther removed from relevant pressing world issues. So I started a farm in Missouri. And then... I started doing some farming, uh, basically a, an experiment to see, okay, what would a com- community that actually does things right look like? So started with some farming and uh, things like that. Got a tractor, then it broke, paid to get it repaired. Then it broke again. Pretty soon I was broke too. So I learned that I had all my fancy degrees and all that. And I learned I had no practical skills. There is really no good equipment and tools and techniques that I needed to do this work just weren't around either expensive or proprietary so so i started thinking a lot about open source how do we create a if somebody wants to do that how do we do that so let's do open source with hardware 
And the open source part comes from the PhD program, my school back in University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I wasn't even allowed to talk openly about my work so to other groups because the research groups are competing. And then when I thought about it, it's like, wow, this is pretty wasteful. We cannot really learn, even in an institution that's supposed to be public for the public good. Uh, so I, I really looked into that issue of technology and what can we do better about it? And it's really about creating an, a collaborative way to develop things as opposed to proprietary. That's a big theme that yeah. mm-hmm. that's what we're working on. Was it that constraint that uh, that got you in open source, though, where you couldn't speak, sort of muzzled, so to speak? Was that what made you look at open source or this idea of freely sharing ideas? And in the case of open source software, actual code and actual software, but in the case of ideas, the mm-hmm. idea of free and open source or free and yeah. available to other people where it's an ecosystem or a community, is that what got you into that, this this muzzle? Or yeah. was it sort of actual open source software and actual open source communities that sort of like got you excited? It's both. So actually it's a combination of a few factors. So first of all, I was completely alienated from the work that I was doing. Seconds, as in my group, we so we were using Macs, right? And then uh, somebody one day said, hey, I got this Linux thing on my desktop, and they, they showed it to me. It's like, oh, wow, interesting. It's something you can download, you can modify, it's free, people contribute to. I was completely blown away because I thought there's only one way to do things. Like, okay, there's Mac mm-hmm. and Windows. So when somebody showed me that, it was like, wow, there are different ways to do things. And I learned about the whole philosophy behind that project, and I started thinking, well, how do you apply that to a more collaborative system like in the work that we were doing where I wasn't able to communicate openly. So that that part of just thinking about really the terrible waste, the reinventing of the wheel that happens, that I think that was the primary driver mm. behind it. And there's also the concept of just there's Madison, you know, it's a, it's a radical, it's a very progressive town. So I kind of got radicalized there too much more than just my science, like social issues and environmental issues. And uh, thinking about the world of technology, I was like, well, why can't we make a better life for everybody on this planet? It's just unacceptable that some people have, and you know, a lot of people are left out of the fun that we're having with our DSLR cameras and podcasts here. Uh, right. There's a lot of deprivation happening at the same time that the technology of humankind is so powerful and amazing. We can go to the moon, but we can't kind of arrange our human business on this planet so that everybody benefits. And that was that philosophical disconnect between, okay, me studying this fancy stuff and not being able to do really anything with it. I felt powerless. So hmm. started the project. I said, okay, let's start a, an experiment, a social, basically a civilization startup experiment. I mean, I, I still kind of call it this. It's, a, it's basically how, what does it take to, to make a civilization from scratch? Uh, how do you go about that? You need some technology, you need some sociology. So that's right. kind of the origin. Yeah. Extracting these resources, et cetera. How did you jump from PhD in fusion, buying a tractor, farming, to building your own tractor? Because that to me seems like there is a gap in skills there. And you, eventually you, you open sourced these plans for building 50 different mm-hmm. machines. So not just tractors, but you went from like my tractor's broken to I'm building my own tractor from first principles, so to speak. Where'd you acquire that knowledge? Was it just, you know, yeah. powered through it like one step at a time or did you consult somebody? How do you learn how to build these things? Yeah. yeah. So definitely in the, you might think that, Oh yeah, PhD in physics is like, you might have some practical skills. No, I mean, wasn't prepared for any of this. This is about turning wrenches and 
designing things from scratch because typically you work with established things. So it was the need, the fire in the pants to, to do something that the tractor that I bought, it was 1970s tractor cost like 5,000 bucks. Then just breaks. The transmission goes out. I got it repaired. And one week from then it completely broke again. And I said, this is not sustainable. I can't do this. I can't have a $2,000 bill one week. And then I don't know what's going to happen the next, next right. time. So I said, okay, I'm still committed to this, this amazing experiment of seeing how technology could be appropriate. And this is the, just the very opposite of appropriate technology. So I'm saying, okay, this is a fundamental flaw here. And, and I will not be able to do this, nor will anybody else be able to do this if we don't solve this question of appropriate technology. I mean, I studied a lot of this, like <laughs> during the PhD program, I did not study that in my formal work, but, but nights and weekends and a lot of time right. uh, I spent getting into all this stuff and almost getting kicked out of my PhD program because I was doing too much of it. But then I found, no, okay, there are, you know, in the theories in the books, it says, yeah, this, we need appropriate technology. But then I got my first hand look at what that really means. And it's like, you need a machine that needs to work. And it, I want to be able to fix it. I want to be able to maintain it for a lifetime, not be subject to planned obsolescence. So I said, okay, I'm going to build this myself, design it so that anyone can have access to it. And then, okay, the good thing that I did get from the PhD was, was the first principles thinking that you mentioned. So I said, okay, mm -hmm. well, what's a tractor? Okay, it's, it's this box, this frame with wheels and drive and engine and some hydraulics, and you start kind of reverse engineering from the ground up. But the surprise was really good. I mean, these things work. You get yourself some engines, some steel, some hydraulics, and the stuff just works with very basic design. And then you want to strip it down to the most essential design that's as simple as possible, but no simpler, that still works, does your thing, and is designed for you being the actual owner of it. You own it and you control it. So that was a, definitely a breakthrough experience for me. It started actually, it did not start with the tractor. It started with the brick press, um, both brick mm. press and the tractor about the same time because the fire under the pants was, okay, here's a raw piece of land that I ended up on. I need a house. I need to mm -hmm. do some agriculture here too. So, so those two tools were the first in line. The first, very first one was the brick press which we used to build the, the first workshop, bunch of houses that we have here. Uh, but basically said, yeah, we got to, um, if we want to be in control of our destiny, we have to have some control over the, the equipment base, not be completely subject to what, what the industry is giving you. Mm. Explain that brick press. What is that exactly? Since that's the first piece you started with. Yeah. Yeah. So the brick press is, it's an earth compact. So it takes soil from beneath your feet and it compresses that into structural block and you can add some stabilizer some cement to it or you can press without any cement but basically you get construction grade engineered material from the local material so if you have clay soil you can compress that and you get bricks that are between like 300 and 1000 psi or so which is plenty for construction it's kind of like adobe but the technological version where you're compressing a regular shaped block from that you can see plenty of videos of us pressing thousands of these and piles of these but that's that's the first machine we did. Pretty cool. And the cool thing is, is you're probably standing on it, right? You got your materials right beneath your feet. Yeah. So that process is you, you build yourself a machine for a couple of thousand bucks, and then you can press material for your house. That's great. Low cost, but a lot of labor. So that, yeah. was, that was the learning there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you ever bump again, 
against the right to repair scenario in part yeah. of it is, is some of that in this story? Cause it wasn't really mentioned in your Ted talk and in a lot of your story, but I'm assuming it's at least a part of the story to some degree. Oh yeah. I mean, that's essentially in there. It's been, it's been uh, there th from the very beginning since the tractor broke, but I didn't, we didn't call it right to repair. That kind of came out maybe a decade after that or right. years after that. Uh, but definitely completely identify with it, the right to repair, for example, on your tractors where now John Deere is putting proprietary equipment that you don't even own the software. And if it breaks, like you're completely dependent on the service from the, from John Deere. Like there's a lot of pushback yeah. from that because people are saying, Hey, I don't really own this thing. This thing is owning me. Yeah. Can you defend their side of it just by any example? Like I know you have your own side of it, but can you defend at least the oh, yeah. commercial side of their thinking behind that by any means? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear. It's, it's about control. So if you're a business in the modern system of commerce, you're beholden to your stockholders to maximize profit. One way to do that is you, you concentrate information, you concentrate the services, you don't empower the customer to do all the things that would make the thing lower cost. So to give you some numbers, today a farmer will go out and splurge with like half a million dollars worth of equipment that depreciates 10% per year, like $50,000 per year, right? Wow. Well, so you're talking about a 10 year lifetime before you gotta snap up that, that half a million dollar deal again. Well, think about that. It's like 10 years. That's, you know, you might say that that's pretty cool. You know, I grew all these beans and corn and, and made this money, which actually is marginal these days. So they're, they're on this hamster wheel of, of keeping up uh, with the mm -hmm. system. But then the, the thing emerges, well, what if you had your right to repair uh, you'd absolutely drive your costs lower. It would be lower cost to repair things. Like, for example, to, to give you a great example. So the tractor uh, that I use right now, it's got modular parts. It's got a modular engine unit. If that thing breaks, I take a, take a little hoist to that and take off the power cube. It's a modular hydraulic power unit with an engine. I take that off, and in an hour, I put an, another one, and I'm off running again. So it wasn't a week or two trip to the repairman or you know, mm -hmm. declining my productivity. It's something that I can control. Very low cost. So design it to be modular lifetime design, which you can if it's open source. If you're proprietary, you're not going to have that. You're going to make more money as the company because you're providing that service. So the choice is yours. But which one will yeah. you take? <laughs> yeah. Lower cost, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, you want that. You also have to kind of be willing to get your hands dirty and build the thing, which... I mean, be is. there's reasons to do that. Like it's a compelling case with price and ownership and the ability to modularly repair it over the years. Let's take the tractor that you, I don't know, is, is the tractor that you built back when you first started this different than the tractor that you're running now? I assume you got. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. There's been six iterations so far. So each okay, one is different and it improves. Yeah. It's, it's constantly, we're building the next iteration this year. Yeah. Okay. So let's take your current iteration tractor because I got a small uh, piece of land out here and I've been looking at tractors just because I got stuff that I like to do and I got a John Deere nearby and I'm like, man, they're mm -hmm. so stinking expensive. I'm an amateur farm outdoorsy person, but I wonder like starting from scratch, mm -hmm. if I started tomorrow and I took your global village construction set, I'm sure the tractor's in there. You got 50 different machines in there. I just took your tractor plan. What would it take for me to get that thing built, cost, time? Yeah. I have software skills. I can turn a wrench, but I don't have a lot of tools myself that you take to build things like, Oh, right. like I can't weld. So uh, yeah. What, what would it take? 
Okay, let's get a reality check here. So first of all, we don't have the 50 machines yet. We've got about eight or so prototypes. Oh, okay, so that's the plan. Or there's about 27 that we've prototyped. There's about seven or so that are at the product release stage. So for okay. example, download our blueprints for the brick press, the tractor, the house, the 3D printer, the torch table. Make a business out of it. Go ahead. But there's only a, a handful of those right now. And the big Fair thing enough. right now is about the enterprise side so that you right now have a choice not to go to John Deere, but to the open source ecology version tractor and get that as a turnkey service. Okay. So right now I would say, you might say, okay, how do I build it? I don't know. Forget about it. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> only unless you're diehard and you're willing to go through a steep learning curve, are you going to do right. this? But that's the thing where the big surprise for me was that it's that side of the enterprise development is not taking off like the designs. Like here, we're doing this the whole time. People are not replicating. It's hard. Altogether, there's been like a dozen or two replications of about a dozen of the brick press, several of the tractor. But okay. it's a huge different story between the prototype that you can make work and you're, you know, you're hacking it the whole time and a commercial product. So this is where we're at right now. We're at the stage of getting all this to the commercial traction stage. And that's basically where we're, we're, we want to succeed. Because right now we haven't, we, it, this has not succeeded. You have difficulties that are probably, if I give you a number, it's probably a thousand times harder than software. Like realistically speaking, with the materials, with the learning curves, the, the reality. You're not moving electrons, you're moving atoms. And this is hard, right. this is logistics. This is, this is parts that are completely, you got a thousand different parts you can choose from. The, the, you're right. working from a system that's got 200 years of industrial inertia of proprietary development. You're dealing with part suppliers that you have a whole junkyard of cars and you can't even make a single working car from all of that because all the parts are different. There's some challenges. So I think listener Josh yeah. really pegged you. I mean, pioneer is really what you are doing because you're having to really lay groundwork here in order yeah. to make this thing bootstrapped. Exactly. And we're talking about, I mean, the learn initially I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, TED talk time, all this amazing interest and all of that. But it's a hard management thing because to take it from a prototype to the product, it's like you gotta do not like one or two prototypes. You gotta do like 10 or a hundred. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. it's kind of like software where you fix the bug, done, okay, next bug, next bug. But how many bugs you have? Thousands, right? It's the same with hardware. You mm -hmm. fix one thing, you learn a new thing, and then you can keep improving this and improving this, and it takes a long time. Well, then how do the, the proprietary guys do that? Well, my answer to that is that their equipment is crap in general. I mean, it's, it's pretty high performance, but it's nowhere near what it could be if you unleash a collaborative effort to do so. Mm. That's what we're going after. And it's not because the incentive structures don't actually align for that to be the case, right? Uh, explain that question. The incentive structures of the business. So like light bulb manufacturer, like is it in his best interest that his light bulb lasts forever? No, it's not because he wants no. you to buy the next light bulb. I'm saying like the way that it's the incentive exactly. structure of the economy doesn't make it so that John Deere wants to build the heart, the tractor that never no. breaks down, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't want to put... Uh, bad intentions on John Deere people. It's just like, that's the incentive structure of the business, right? It's a structural evil. Yes. It's an incentive structure. I, I use the word structural evil. We're within, <laughs> we're within a paradigm that makes this happen. Now that's very rational for John Deere to make that tractor and not collaborate, have the best one, get some 
who stopped the sales and so forth. But the opposite of that is what if John Deere and Mahindra and Mahindra and biggest tractor company in the world from India, all the other ones, Case, Bobcat, what if they all collaborate to make the super machine? Well, we can make a case that it would be, it could be better. And you clearly can't say that. Like, for example, to, get, to reify that a little bit, if you go out on the internet, if you know anything about diesel engines, the people will say that there is no one perfect diesel engine. And I'm looking at that, it's like, huh, I thought about this, this issue. It's like, okay, is that because there's so many different options and this and that, and everyone complains about a diesel engine. Like there's whole religions, like this is my favorite diesel engine. This is my favorite diesel engine, or that one. And each one of them says that, okay, well, this is better because of this, but it doesn't have this, that, and the other. And I'm saying, like, why can't it not have all? Why can it not be actually the best engine? And that's actually a, an, an issue we're struggling with right now because we don't really have a great engine to work from. Yeah. And we're going to have to open source that in the future. But that's an interesting story that the incentives there are to keep mediocrity as the status quo. We might think we have unleashed radical, crazy innovation, AI, and all of this, this and that. But... I think we're still in a stone age until we learn to collaborate. I think that's a human flaw, though, to some degree, or maybe something that we can key off of, which is that it's very difficult for us to think about three generations from now, right? Mm -hmm. And to sacrifice our lives to some degree mm -hmm. of yeah. some yeah. financial upstream, upside, whatever it might be, to pay mm -hmm. the sacrifice necessary or to create a system that is like you're trying to do or in this means and not have the, you know, the yep. incentive structures that Jared's talking about, because we can't really see one or maybe two generations down the line of our humanity. We're sort of in the now and we're sort of selfish as individuals. We, tr we say we're not, but we definitely are in mm -hmm. our actions. Mm -hmm. And you see that yep. by having sort of incentive structures that really just focus on the quarter the half year versus the yeah, 10 years thinking. down the line. Some yeah. of us think and transcend that thought pattern and are visionaries and innovators and pioneers like you might be, but not the collective at large. And that's where I yeah. think it's very difficult for us to, because we, we sort of like slinky, you know, some of us go forward then while the rest of us catch up and it's sort of like this <laughs> constant move and flow of right. like thinking about the long-term future and doing what's necessary to plan for that long-term future. We're not all in, literally yeah. all in on that idea. <laughs> We're not all all in. Yeah, that's right. All in. That's right. Well, there's friction, there's inertia, there's other challenges in your life that just take priority over, you know, certain ideals or or certain moves. This is this is fascinating. So you're not there yet. And the TED talk is like a decade ago, the 2011-ish time. So you yeah, so you've been putting all I mean, you've really been working on this. How do you sustain? How do you what have you been doing in the meantime? Like I know, are you homesteading for the most? I know you're building all your own stuff, but like financially, how are you making a living and all that? Our revenue model is actually workshops and selling some of the machines. So for example, right now we sell the 3D printer kits. So you can go online and buy a kit from us. That's how we bootstrap. We also okay. run workshops where, for example, we'll take a dozen or two dozen people over a weekend and we, we build a 3D printer that they take home. Or we do other things like where you build, go over a weekend and build the tractor. So crazy things like that. Up to five-day events where you build the CD home. Actually, this house that I'm in right now has been built over five days with 50 people. 
So we do these swarm-based build, build events. So it's part of the that's experience cool. economy. Both products, education, and experience economy are our revenue model. And that's that's what we're doing. Initially, we had okay. some uh, started some true fans, crowdfunding, did a couple of Kickstarters. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's definitely, I mean, the next milestone is just get the revenue streams happening. Uh, we're planning to build and sell these houses. It's a model of a thousand square foot house that you can build with a friend in one week for $50,000. Or we can give you a turnkey version of that for 130K, including land. Mm. That's our next major milestone. And we think we're going to get some traction with this because a lot of everyone wants a home. Yeah. I mean, uh, buy some acreage if you can scoop some of that up and plant that. But <laughs> who's coming to these workshops? What kind of person comes there? Computer programmers who need practical skills, survivalists. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. people who want makers, uh, yeah. educators. It's a very, very broad crowd of, of really? freaks from <laughs> society all over the place. Yeah. Both mainstream and progressive people. It's a wild bunch. Yeah. Basically want the common theme is there. We, you know, we want to take charge of learning practical skills, building things, uh, just getting away from that. Like just the same thing that I faced is that, you know, I got my PhD and then I could not build a thing. I had no practical skills. There's that big gap. It's also now a big political divide now that the huge gap between the intellectual world, the world of finance capital and the productive people who are still in touch with producing things. Because I must say, um, a long time ago, we, you know, we've been makers, like we've, you know, lived in a jungle and, and slayed an animal. We built things. That kind of instinct is still quite deep within a lot of people. Everyone has that. You want to be, have your agency show. And the best way to show that is through manifestation of physical objects. So that's a kind of drive that unifies a lot of the people that come to our workshops. Our friends at Retool help you to build internal tools remarkably fast. Stop wrestling with UI libraries. Stop hacking together data sources. Start shipping apps that move your business forward. Learn more and try it out for free today at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. We've been talking about bootstrapping. You're bootstrapping this whole new thing. What is, and you wanted to start with the concept of like, what do you need foundationally, first principles to bootstrap a civilization? This is the global village construction set is the goal. 50 different industrial machines, I think, is eventually where it's headed. But like bootstrapping, you got to start somewhere, right? You got to tie the boots and then pull yourself up by the straps. I don't know. Yeah. How do you bootstrap a civilization is the question. Yeah. One property of the system is that it's a bootstrapping recursive kind of a thing where one machine builds the next one. So there's a logical sequence that we can propose right now, starting with the smaller, some of the smaller things and getting to the larger things. And that would be as a case example. And of course, the, the first example, like a 3D printer, relies yeah. on a bunch of technology, but, but take a look at this. So say you have a 3D printer. With the 3D printer, the way we design it, we can actually make parts to produce a CNC torch table, which cuts steel, and then you can take that steel, and in, in an automated cutting process, you get all the steel for your tractor. Now then you mm. take your tractor, and you can build your house. So you can see that there's a logical progression there. But of course, like at the very base is, okay, well, where do I get all that steel and plastic and all of that too? And the answer is there's other machines that produce materials from raw feedstocks. 
Like the whole point is take rocks, sand, plants, soil, water, take those things and convert that to, that's where all the modern civilization comes from. So what are the machines that produce that? So we have some of the things like an induction furnace that, for example, can melt steel to generate virgin steel from scrap. So, for example, in our scenario right now, we can go take all the waste uh, scrap metal or go to a junkyard and and turn that into virgin steel from your tractor. You have things Mm -hmm. like plastic extrusion, so you can do 3D printing or make the the plastic from waste plastic. That's kind of a low-hanging fruit. Uh, Plastic recycling, so you're shredding plastic, you're remelting it, making it into 3D printing filament or rubber filament that you can print with. There's for each part of civilization, there's a machine that does the thing, like... Digging rocks, you, you dig rocks, you burn that rock and you turn it into concrete. Now you got your concrete foundation. You can go through that kind of a simple thinking process for every single thing. Rocks, that's that's like iron ore, right? right Melt right. it, smelt it, you got steel, steel concrete plants, you got plastics. All the present oil-based economy also can be gotten out of trees. It's carbon. So you got to know a little bit of chemistry for that. You got some industrial engineering there, but it's all a ra- very rational. Like once you start wrapping your head around the whole process, you say, wow, this is really cool. And these, all these resources are all around us. This is beautiful. So that's the bottom line right now. I, I'm, I'm in a very optimistic standpoint. I'm a techno utopian, but not the Diamandis style one of AI and, and computers and all of that, but more like let's get to the bottom of the resources and the whole machinery set that is open source and reproducible over the world so other countries can leapfrog to the same state of excellence that we have attained yeah. here and so forth. Because hmm. the path to build those kind of tooling isn't there in the proprietary world. Or it is, and it's expensive, and it probably is closed-doored. You know, you have to have a special key or a card or a title or a company style or something like that yeah. to get access to these brands that have these tooling. So your path is accessible, even if it takes motivation, whereas the other side, the fork in the road may have many hurdles, if not straight up roadblocks. So let me address that. One point about this is how how do you make this easier for people? So the idea is it's like, Jared, I said, forget about it. Well, not (laughs) if you have the local open source micro factory in your town, where instead of going to Walmart and buying a thing, you can go into a place where you can get a turnkey product or sign up for a manufacturing build where you actually build that yourself. And the thing is, when you build it yourself, now you own it. You can repair it. I think tons of people will do that. Yeah. This has been my desire for a very long time. A buddy of mine, I'm like, I'm not a woodsman. I don't, I'm not a very good woodworker. I don't have the tools. I don't want to set up a shop. I don't have the space for a shop. I'd love it if there was something nearby that had all the Mm -hmm. necessary tooling so I can Mm -hmm. go when I wanted to. Maybe it's similar to a gym membership, you know, where I Mm -hmm. pay a monthly fee or some sort of membership fee or something like that. And I have access to this club or this place because it takes money to make these things Mm -hmm. go around. Right. But I have access to space and tooling that I may desire to have and own in my own home, but just don't have the space for it. And in this case, if you have these kind of things all over the place, then rather than Jared's question to you and you say, forget about it, you know, it's more like just go down to your local open source. What did you call it? Open source manufacturing. Micro factory. Micro factory. Take a class and build the thing yourself yeah. with, by renting two hours of time in yeah. the space and build a thing. And when exactly. it breaks in the future, you know, as you said, with your machine or your, your engine, hoist it up, 
take the part out, go back to the open source micro factory, rent the two hours of time on the machines and exactly remake the part. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the theme behind the, the maker spaces, hacker space movement, mm-hmm. though those kinds of spaces currently, they're not really set up for, for real industrial productivity in a small scale. It's largely an education kind of tinkering kind of a space, but basically think of the, the hacker space with a business model. Here's how we actually produce things. And the thing that's actually missing, people think that there's all this in open source hardware, there's open source this, open source that, instructables. Oh yeah, you can find anything. No, it's actually not the case. For anything that's actually a very good product, very little of that exists. There are, you know, there are some stuff that's out there, but the sad fact we run into right now is that anything that's actually really good, it tends to still hide and become proprietary. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. cases of open source hardware projects yeah. that kind of hid and things like that. Uh, but just to take the limit to what you have to be, do- be doing is you have to be able to take metals for modern civilization. You have to be able to take metals, machine them, and make ball bearings. Like ball bearings, I would say, is like the number one technology that allows the world to spin, a- spin around, spin. no pun intended. Yeah. I mean, it's the core of industrial machines that spin, that are, for example, like your uh, CNC mills and whatever your cars wheels. Mm-hmm. So if you can make the the bearing, which is a relatively simple device, not too not too complex, a, a grinder that takes little balls and actually grinds them into perfect shape, that level of type of equipment. When you start thinking about, oh, okay, ball bearing machine, metal processing equipment that you can actually now start making steel. And the good thing is though that none of this takes mega factories of yesterday. This is all doable in a very small scale facility. Like here, we have a four thousand square foot workshop. You can do all of this in the workshop. So our goal is to have that workshop. You got an induction furnace, you got some CNC machines, you got a torch table, got 3D printers and other hand tools. You can build just about anything. Hmm. And it's a business model to develop. Yeah. These are big ideas, but sometimes to get to the next phase, you have to have focus. And Mm -hmm. so you'd mentioned business model in terms of selling 3D printers, workshops, Mm -hmm. things like that. You know, when you take all this knowledge of making civilization, where are you placing that focus at now? Is it one part is obviously building homes, but is that where it begins? You mentioned ball bearings and, you know, yeah. different things. So how do you focus what you're trying to do to sort of like get to that next stage to sort of keep yeah, the rollout. rather than just simply building tractors? Like, what are you focusing on? Yeah, uh, the rollout right now is the, the project that we're doing right now is the seed eco home, the house that I mentioned. And because everyone needs a house, we're thinking that's going to be a great way to generate revenue through a very efficient, lean, well-designed thing. We've made several prototypes. We think we know what we're doing. But at the same time, you also say, okay, so I'm going to start me a, this house building enterprise and we're going to produce idea if everything works out, hundreds of these this year, like, or at least get hundreds of orders uh, so we can execute, uh, which means we're also training people to build. But when I think about that enterprise, it's like, okay, well, what about a 3D printer or a tractor? Well, I need that tractor to do the foundation, to hoist you know, the lumber, move things around, spread the gravel. So we're actually saying, okay, we're gonna we're developing this house, but as side projects along with that, we are launching some other campaigns so that we get the tractor to a final workable version so we can lower the cost on the house business. So that's part of the house business. And the 3D printers that we've developed, we know we can make a lot of things that we use as materials for the house, like 3D printed plastic lumber, like 
foundation forms that facilitate the foundation, like all this kind of stuff you can do if you have a larger printer and waste processing infrastructure for processing abundant plastic waste into, into filament. So actually, as part of the house, which is our main campaign right now, we're doing side the campaigns around the 3D printer and the tractor. We're taking those also to the finish line so that we can reduce the cost of the housing. That's our current uh, one-year, two-year yeah. program to get these three, the, the 3D printer, tractor, house, out the door so that we can have widespread access. Is there anyone out there in the commercial spaces, proprietary spaces that don't have your thinking that's threatened by what you're doing? And if so, no. how are they reacting? No? I don't think so. Not yet because they don't understand it. Or, or even they the maker spaces you mentioned, like making your own things. There's somebody out there that's like, like you're not buying their thing. You're not going to Lowe's and Home Depot to no. buy the thing anymore. You're sort of like making it on your own to some degree. Yeah. That is if we had thousands or millions of replications, mm-hmm. which we don't. So until yeah. the point where you have reached a billion dollar scale or so, or at least like 10 million, you're hardly going to be noticed. Right. Our budgets are, we've only spent over the last decade or so, it's about 2 million bucks. It's shoestring. So that's part of the learnings. It's like, no, you, you put forth this design. No, people are not going to start going crazy and making all kinds of enterprises across the world like I thought would happen with the brick press or the tractor. When I first published the brick press, I thought, wow, can I publish this? Like, this, people are going to steal it. They're gonna, the world's going to explode with this. What am I going to do? No, it's far from it. The, 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 the thing is, it takes much more work to, to get there. And because society is missing what we call collaborative literacy is why this is not going forward. We're too used to the idea that, no, it can't work. You, you can't like, get this collaborative effort. Like, it's just so foreign. I think there's 200 years of industrial inertia. Everything is proprietary, right? So when I first did the TED Talk, I was like, Yes, beautiful, all these people coming at our door, but you find that at the end of the day, it's what can happen is limited. You need an infrastructure to harness that entire effort. But first, I think it's the real intent of people who are committed to make this happen. That is not there. It's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of shallow effort, but not the consistent model where you're literally saying, hey, we're going to reinvent the blueprints of civilization for how R&D goes. That's a bigger question. So we're just, I mean, I think this year is going to be a place where we'll get some serious cash flows happening and then we can bootstrap to further, further R&D that actually gets this thing done. Because on the calendar, on our roadmap, 2028 is when we finish the entire Global Village construction set. So we've got a, like six years, seven years, eight years maybe. Mm-hmm. And you're what, roughly eight, you said six or eight in actual production readiness? Yeah, there's like six that are productizable right now there's right. like 22 altogether 20 actually it's more like 27 since last year but you have to consider that each one of these items is at least a million dollar budget so we, we did just about right you know like two million bucks we got like one or two things out the door at the end of the day you have to take the due diligence to to make it all happen corporate budgets are you you, you plop down a couple of million on a project or a startup budget plop down a couple of million you develop a first prototype, go to market, things like that. That's what it takes. But in open source, of course, the idea is that, oh, well, so many people contribute that it's actually all, we share the burden and it's all people pay with their sweat equity and time, just like Linux, and we get it all done to great benefit to everybody. Well, it just hasn't happened for hardware. It's a mental block. 
collaborative literacy. Yeah. Uh, how do you get past that? What are you thinking so far to get past this collaborative literacy issue? We're optimistic and zealous. It's simply you got to create a product. You got to use the, the old revenue generation thing, the bootstrap thing. The, the way we can scale this is by we're not taking any investment because I don't think that's that's right. It's like we're generating this whole class of people who are third parties that gain a share in the, in the enterprise. That would kind of defeat the purpose if we are to scale, because of course your investors, they're, they're going to want to be proprietary. So there's a little block there, let's say. But how do you scale this to the world? Through open enterprise that anyone can replicate, but it has to rely on bootstrap business models. And that's what we're doing. So with the house, uh, the idea is you've got a product, you sell it and you reinvest. And that's as simple as that. It's, it's not too much magic. It's like, Everyone's got a job. We got to start creating jobs where on your task queue, it's instead of working for a corporation, you have a viable option to work in distributed production as generated by this kind of movement in an open source micro factory. So it's about revenue models that are created that work and that can scale. That's where we're at. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the product, the house. I mean, everybody wants a house. Let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the house itself. I know it's modular. There's a lot of systems to it. You mentioned mm -hmm. actually pressing yeah. bricks. You've talked about printing, yeah. you know, using plastic filaments from recyclables, mm -hmm. all these things like break down what yeah. a home you build consists of. Yeah. So the initial rollout is, so it's modular construction and we're not doing the first one with the brick press because that's much harder. So we're using standard light framing, but it's modular so that the offer is a thousand square foot house. The initial model is two stories, but basically panel, panelized so that you can either build it yourself or have a large event like we, we typically do in order to build it. So it's not like you make the whole wall and you lift it up. You make four by eight modules, standard construction material like Legos. You build all the four by eight panels. There are the walls, the windows, the doors, and then you put a roof, you got a foundation and a roof on that. And then everything is designed to be highly modular. And that way, I guess the unique thing is about the integration of the entire process to consider the most effective way to build and a way that an unskilled person, I think the biggest thing is about allowing widespread access, which means that any single person can be able to do this. So the, the way it could work is you have your weekends off your job, you can build all the panels that go up, go into this house, and then in one week with a friend, you can assemble it. So, so you got a complete house uh, starting. The foundation has to be there already. But in one week, so two people, so 80 hours, build the whole thing from these pretty much pre-made modules that you can spend as much time as you need to, to get them done. That's, that's the kind of model. So you can allow people to have a job to do this, or you can just hire contractors to do this or hire us. So we're training yeah. people to, to mm -hmm. be able to do this. It's a very romantic notion to build your own house. I think it appeals, of course, the price advantages, the modularity, the fact that you can start small and add later, especially if you have land or you have the space to do that in the suburbs. You can't really, you know, start small and build from there. But in certain contexts, you can. But I think it's it's wise to say that's not like the only plan is like, hey, come build your own house because mm -hmm. it's that's not going to scale. That's not going to reach enough people. You know, you could have the you have to have the builders who are like, we also do. Do you have a name for these kind of house? Open Building Institute. I know it's an institute, but like, what's the name for that kind of a house? Like, I'm looking for a, you know, there's tiny homes, there's mobile homes, there's 
uh, other kinds of homes. It needs a brand like a, name. Yeah, what's the what's the name of these things? Like, I want to have a open house. The brand name is called Seed Eco Home. Seed yeah. Eco Home. Okay. Why is it called Seed? Because it's fully expandable. So the way we designed it right now, the initial design is thousand square feet, but it's readily designed to add to it. So you can build a 2000 square foot model on top of that. So we're even like pre-framing the places where you, you will add. So you, you have like placeholders for doors and stuff like that. But because the method is completely modular, you can do this. And the system is designed so you can start with a little home and grows with your needs. So you don't get like one crappy home that you can afford. You get a small quality home. And then as time goes on, you build on. Because any structure out there is, I mean, the initial build is just about, it's actually about 20% of the entire building. When you consider all the maintenance, the additions, and so forth, most of it happens afterwards. You can invest in something small that you can actually live with for a long time. It's flexible. Is this idea to some degree focused on, let's say, Western civilization, say, U.S.-centric ideas? Or is it in other areas of the world? Because I think, for example, here in Texas, barn dominiums are somewhat popular. People with the want a workshop, they yeah. call it a barn dominium because they're not really a barn, but they're sort of a home and a workshop space. Or you've got, mm-hmm. Jared mentioned tiny homes. I don't know if those are super popular here in Texas. we got lots of land, so tiny doesn't make any sense. But you know, <laughs> building something on your land, you might have a lot of land and you may not want to build a home. You might want to build a second space or sort mm-hmm. of an out you know, you know, an outpost or something like that that's in your in your space where the idea of home in these cases may not so much resonate, but it might in other areas of the world where where say technological advancements aren't there or accessibility isn't there, or you have a culture that's totally focused on and already bought into this idea of building it your own tooling or this open source tooling idea. Like they may not call it that, but they're already doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, for this, the market here is we initially thought, oh, yeah, we can. This is the owner builder model where everyone's going to build their own house. And and after thinking about it, it's like, nah, they ain't going to scale. Yeah, uh, We need to provide a turnkey product that you can hire us and we give you a house. So that's that's here. And that will bootstrap the further developments where, like, for example, the brick press, just doing some of the final refinements, we found that the last thing we need on that is a soil mixer that allows you to mix cement and soil so you can stabilize block to make it waterproof. That's like the last thing to make it fully industrial. And we won't actually start selling these bricks as a viable building material like you'd get at Menards. But the thing is, the initial level is, okay, let's get a house out there. We know that you can make money selling a house. And we're going to invest that to refine the further developments. Now we're do- using our own tractor to build it. We're printing trim, plastic lumber and foundation forms and plumbing fittings. And then we're going on to now here's your compressed earth block techniques. Here's the sawmill that if it's readily accessible and imagine a CNC sawmill, you drop a log, log to it and walk away and then you just got a pile of lumber like that. A techie person could do that. So, so mixing uh, automation, the appropriate automation within all this process, and you can uh, avail this unbridled productivity on a small scale, right? So that's that's the vision to just create more options for people, so you don't just have Menards or Lowe's, Home Depot to go to. Because actually, right now there's a real lo- shortage of lumber that the price yeah. of lumber went up like three times. Yeah, um, it's so insane that's a, this year. Yeah, it's a practical thing too if you can generate your local materials. 
we're finishing our basement right now and I joke that we're it's like we're putting another house inside of our house yeah. because the prices are astronomical. And it yeah. takes a really long time because the builders are all just completely they're all building stuff. No builder is dying mm-hmm. for your business right now because they're so yeah. busy. So it's not a great time. We really looked out because we did an addition to our home earlier this year and we beat the timing in terms of our quote having to go up because of the cost of lumber. But you know, we were just by the nick of time to begin essentially to beat that time frame because it was going to go up mm. like three times the cost for the lumber part of it alone. So is there any real solution for that? I actually think there is with 3D printing. So each person in the United States generates like 100 pounds of waste, plastic waste, and it all goes to the trash. Yeah. I mean, imagine taking the abundant plastic waste and distributed production of say uh, lumber plastic lumber you can get plastic lumber at the big box stores too that's that's a technology that you take you're taking the entire waste plastic stream and with a basic shredder and a filament maker you can now start making filament to now start printing large things why can't you do that right now well a spool of filament is 20 bucks that would make for a very expensive two by four if you yeah. like 40 yeah. 50 two by four if you did that but if you reduce that that price of the plastic by 10 to 100x by going to waste plastic streams, then you're talking. So that that's part of the initiative. We're going to do this as a very explicit part of the CD Eco Home. Here's now uh-huh. plastic lumber technology that we can now lower barriers to in this whole process. Well, let's talk about that because this is something I've become more and more aware of, I would say, over the last several years, but more so specifically very recently. Mm -hmm. I had to like almost double, I'm about to triple the size of the containers I use to hold my recyclables to put out on Monday, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I've become more and more aware of what I would typically throw into the waste bin that goes into a Mm -hmm. landfill that could be in my son and my wife. And we all say we can make something out of that. So when we throw it away and we accidentally put it into the trash, which goes into the landfill and it's something we can make something out of. We say, oh, we can make something out of that, and we move it to the recycle section, which typically it's some variation of plastic. Uh, in some cases, it's aluminum, you know, with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tinfoil or whatever it might be. But in most cases, it's something we can use and make something from. And I've personally seen my recyclable areas from cardboard boxes from Amazon or whatever we're having shipped to our homes quadruple in the last several months. And then also just my awareness of, I would mm-hmm. typically just throw into the trash that could be recycled. Is that what you're saying there? Like we could be more responsible as a society to, I, I suppose, be more aware of how we're funneling that to enable this lower cost. Absolutely. Readily available product for us to use and reuse. The whole thing is about increasing our index of possibilities on industrial productivity on a small scale. So I mentioned yeah. the open source microfactory, right? So it's a community center where you can build your car, build your telephone, build a cordless drill. Uh, things like that. You can do everything in a local microfactory, but but take an even smaller scale at the scale of a house. You got your garage, you can start something, but with a very simple thing like the plastic recycling infrastructure combined with 3D printing, imagine that. I could see that becoming an appliance just like you have a washer and a dryer today, where now you're just throwing your waste plastic and it's just simply a shredder. You pulverize it, you melt it down in just a little heat chamber and extrude it into a thin filament. That is not rocket science. And now you're printing. And a lot of that is just going into a landfill and just sitting there. 
Yeah, but let me tell you one thing, and this is this kind of goes back to our discussion about the lack of innovation today. The three printers have been the greatest example of a, an industry that's been transformed by open source. However, if you look closely, like from my perspective, innovation there is actually slow. For example, we have not, to this date, come up with a high temperature 3D printer. Everything is pretty much ambient temperature or not super high. There's a way to do it where you have a heated build chamber that is so high temperature that you can now print with any plastic. Because right now you can't print with a simple stuff like polyethylene, polypropylene, uh, PVC is limited. But because the things warp and you need an enclosed hot chamber that's very hot, no single open source 3D printer in the world has that. It's like guys who came up with 3D printers like five to 10 years ago as open source, why aren't we going forward on it? It's also an example where there's no clear mechanisms of how you collaborate. Because once say a company like Prusa Printers gets success, they continue and they now run a business and maybe not worry so much about open source anymore. That's kind of typical. But okay, I'm kind of diverging here. The missing link on that home recycling infrastructure is larger and high temperature printers. Now we've got a design and we wanna release that and I hope we can change the world with this, but that's one of the things that's missing. So you got your plastic recycling infrastructure and a more capable printer that prints more than literally with like a couple of materials like PLA and ABS, where you can't mm -hmm. hardly print with ABS even uh, because of the warping issues. You need this high temperature chamber that does not yet exist. So mm. this is the call for innovation and the case for making uh, home recycling industry standard for every individual. Is it because there's uh, we could recycle, but then it would just sort of be extra out there because there's nothing that can, that could take the material that we would recycle and use it. Is that what you're saying is the pipeline is available there, but there's nothing there to actually use what would come out of the pipeline, which is home owners or people everyday folks like you and I recycling. There are some open source variants of machines that can shred and make plastic with, but none that can do it very well. So there's a technology gap there, like none of the that is reliable or cheap enough to do it. There's really good grinders, uh, but as far as uh, open source filament maker that can make anything, you think there would be, and you'd, you'd read tons about it. Oh yeah, this one and that one. But actually a lot of them, like the ones you can buy, they work with pellets, very highly controlled pellets that you buy off the shelf, which are still not recycled plastic, really. To recycle plastic, you have to have much more tolerance. It takes more science because you're mixing all kinds of stuff in there and, and rat hairs and dust and everything else. You got to have a process that's designed to take everything. Uh, so it has to be a very robust, good system. That system does not exist yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The filament maker that you can get, it will run typically from commercial pellets, not waste plastic, typically. What would that system cost if it did exist? Because it seems like it still might be too expensive for average homeowner to have one of those in their garage. Yeah. We'd like to do one for about $2,000. There's a price point for the shredding and filament making infrastructure altogether. It seems like a stepping stone to this in-home recycling thing where you can 3D print new things based on your you know, empty Pepsi bottles or whatever is mm -hmm. like what you're talking about, these open micro manufacturing plants. What do you micro call them? Like, open yeah, micro factories. Micro factories, yeah. yeah. It seems like those are kind of like the linchpin for scaling this to different mm -hmm. communities because I may not produce enough 
plastic at my house to have, and I don't know the, what kind of margins or ratios you'd need in order to like output some two by fours or whatever. But if we could all take our recycling to like this little factory and like, then that provides the, the raw materials. It, they do the recycling there and the printing there. Yeah. And then you have some sort of membership where you can just go get whatever free two by fours or cheap two by fours. Cause you've been participating. I can see that becoming mm-hmm. like a thing that people did. And I just, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if like the in-home thing is just going to yeah. fit into too many people's yeah. lives, but like having a thing down the road where it's like, I, I like these people. They, they help me to build stuff and I'll, I'll take my recycling down there and we can like build a community around it there. That's true. What are your thoughts on that? It seems like that thing really could be how you deploy this, these concepts beyond you need a hub, a center, yeah. the real makers, you know, the real enthusiasts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why our vision is 10,000 micro factories worldwide, just about in any city that you can do this at. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with free SSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex applications with dozens of microservices. If you're a developer or a founder that's frustrated with AWS's complexity or Heroku's high costs, you owe it to yourself to use the $100 in free credits they're giving our listeners to give Render a try. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure as code. Heroku customers running production and staging workloads typically see cost reductions of over 50% after switching to Render. Here's the best part. We work closely with the team at Render to ensure you have zero risk by giving you $100 in free credits. Plus, they're going to assign a world-class engineer to your account to offer guidance and answer any questions you have. When you're ready to transition your infrastructure, they'll be there to help you with that too. Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. Get $100 in free credits to try the Render platform, plus a world-class engineer assigned to your account to guide you along the way to send an email to our special email, changelog at render.com to get access to those free credits. All that begins at render.com slash changelog. I don't know your full idea and I'm, I'd love to hear more of this, but I think yeah. hearing it now, I almost think like if you could just prove the concept in one location very, yep. very well. Mm-hmm. So you live in Missouri, right? Yep. Prove it in one space and like the community thrives from it. And then one center at a time. That would be my assumption of how it could work. The dream may be 10,000, but I think for you to prove the concept you know, get one area, especially where these kind of ideas are adopted very well. Colorado mm-hmm. is a place where that kind of stuff happens. In your areas, it's it's where that kind of stuff happens. Like find a few places where, yeah. you know, it's it, there's a need, there's a vacuum. Right. And provide the space, the center, and begin small. Provide this membership, this access, these courses right. or these trainings or these classes and maybe even build some homes in the area as part of your mm-hmm. – your rollout, but start someplace and mm-hmm. just prove it in that one space and then, you know, roll that out 
Absolutely. And then video that thing, document it, start sharing it, right? Show YouTube the success it stories. Constantly. Right. Yeah. Then you can start to get a groundswell. Yeah. Absolutely. By no means are we saying it's easy. Isn't that what you're saying? Doing? That's how you Aren't, do it. <laughs> are you doing that? Well, that's what we're doing in September 2021. That's this year. Nice. There you go. That's the idea. And be, let me just introduce another thing. So in August, about the middle of the month, we're going to do a weekend hackathon where we're inviting 2,000 people to collaborate on publishing the blueprints for the house and some work on a printer and the tractor. So we're going to do a very crazy, large-scale collaborative event that depends on still very simple tools. It's open source FreeCAD, it's Google Docs and collaborative editing, but we've got protocols where you can get masses of people where with module-based design, you can put a lot of people to collaborate together on unprecedented projects. Sounds cool, man. I love this idea because, you know, you were talking about housing and stuff like that, but I, I'd love to like just build my own components to make an RC car or something like that, you know, yeah. or, or make my own skateboard, my own deck, you know, yeah. or something else. Like, like maybe I don't want it, but like the idea of doing you something skateboard? like that. that yeah, well, yeah, sure. My son skateboards. <laughs> I used to skateboard. Oh, okay. I was a skateboarder way back in the day. I can pass that on the torch to my son. Boy. That's right. Yeah. Back in your but, offspring days. That's right, my offspring days when I was singing the songs. <laughs> that was a pre-show thing. But, you know, it's housing, but I think this maker culture, this hacker culture uh, of, you know, you said manifesting physical objects. Is that what you said earlier? Yes, I did. You know, that yes, idea sir. is happening lots with, you know, it's it's happening in the microcontroller space with oh, Arduino yeah. and Raspberry Pi and RISC-V and all these fun things that are happening out there that are yeah. putting very – high technology, small computer abilities into everyday people's hands. Yeah. And you combine that with this space that you're creating exactly. where literally whatever you want to make is possible. Maybe in this case, you're focusing on housing and the larger things that sort of like build civilization because you need somewhere to live to have a civilization, but eventually you just need a hammer or you just need mm -hmm. a skateboard yeah. <laughs> or an RC yeah. car. <laughs> <laughs> A 3D printer is a very good, diverse function tool that can get you there. Because if you think about any of these things that you mentioned, what are they made of? They're made of plastic, a microcontroller, an electric motor, maybe some screws and bolts. And with that, you have just about anything. So if you can make 3D print as far as the, the physical structure of it, you can make your own circuits too. You don't have to make your own circuits. You got Arduinos and plenty other microcontrollers electric motors. Yeah, this is all feasible so that, as I say, the open source micro factory can be producing all these crazy things and like your custom skateboard that's souped up for just for your needs. You can make it custom exactly for what you need. So you learn how to do open source CAD or you can download a bunch of designs from the internet and then manifest it in the open source micro factory where you have the, the appropriate tools. The one thing I would like to add to that is you need some kind of a standardization. We call it tool chain degeneracy. We, that means you don't have like an infinite number of tools with infinite number of parameters that you can't control as a global network because there's too much variation. You can never manage it properly. So reduce it to the single best, most powerful set that's easy to maintain. It's kind of like the standards in software or wherever. But don't go nuts into creating a thousand different versions of a, of a screw, just come up with like the few of the most important ones or like one best engine. Yeah. I, I just want one best engine. I don't want 
3,000 different ones. So agree to some standards, collaborate. But once again, that's the collaborative part. People kind of mm-hmm. have are saying that, wait, wait, where's my, how am I going to make a living then? Uh, so it's about collaborating with uh, modern technology and others and computers to make life easy for everybody so we can do what we really want to do, not be like working just so we can work. What do we really want to do is the real question. Mm-hmm. And the answer is skateboard. No. That's right. And build RC cars. <laughs> yeah. You got to get some ball bearings in there. <laughs> you yeah. got your ball bearings right in there. And it's the start of all civilization. There you go. Ball bearings. Ball bearings are really a useful thing. I, I never. Oh, man. I, when you said that, I realized like how useful ball bearings are. Anything that has, you know, motion with heavy objects or metal between metal, you need yep. a ball bearing in between the two to reduce the friction and make mm-hmm. it last for, you know, however long. I mean, I yeah. noticed that whenever I built, uh, I built mountain bikes for fun yeah. and I just noticed like I'd never really built anything like that ever from scratch from the frame up. And I realized like in a, a bike in general, in the head of the bike, you've got two different ball bearings on the top of part of it and the bottom part of it in the pedal. You got that, you got ball bearings in the pedal, you got ball bearings in the cranks, you got, they're all over the place. And it's just crazy. Like I never really considered how useful they are and how needed they are until I actually built something. They required it. Yeah. Not to mention the machine tools. Like if you have a precision CNC mill to say mill apart, ball bearings are critical to that. So you get that precision. And then if you talk about space age or computer age, that's where air ball bearings come in. So that is super precise structures where one fits in another, like just a cylinder inside a, a round thing that there is no friction because it's actually there's nothing in there. It's not oil. It's just air. That's called yeah. air bearings. And that's what you have in turbines and high vacuum pumps that make semiconductors. Huh. That's true. Yeah. There's nothing in there. Just air. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. The bearing. Yeah. Air bearing. Bull bearing. Air bearing. And that was the big idea too behind Elon Musk's uh, super fast. I forget what that thing was called. Like a hyper, hyper something loop? or other. Hyperloop. Yeah. Yeah, the Hyperloop was listening to yep. that was like put, you know, create a vacuum, large scale object, and you have no friction because you have no air. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially what you're talking about. It's this, this idea of like air as the bearing is the the lubrication is the lack of friction. Somewhat like that, a little bit. Something like yeah. that. Well, you know, that's that's my coming from a fusion Elon engineer. Musk's, he's like, yeah, mm. he's like, kind of not really. Well, with the concept, more or less. <laughs> Well, with the concept that there is no friction, yes, but in the air bearing, there's actually air in there. You want air, so it's it's a little different. But the concept, okay. it's not a vacuum. There's actually air in there. There's gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, there's air versus vacuum, and vacuum is what you're talking about for the hyperloop. Leave it to me to get very particular and then be wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, that is kind of your trademarked move. Uh, it is. Yes. <laughs> So, so one thing I've been wondering, and this is kind of, there's no like easy way to segue to this, but you know, you spent a decade now doing these things and you've built probably machine after machine and you've had failures and successes. You're building houses. Surely there's been some fun horror stories along the way. Things gone terribly wrong, you know, maybe like lose a limb or a finger. Like I'm, you're, you're working with your hands and you have a team doing this. So any cool stories that come out of the last decade of trying to bootstrap this idea? Yeah, I, I did lose some body parts. Like my finger is a little chopped off in my brick press. I can see that. You can see that a little bit. But beyond that, nothing much outside of some psychological damage, maybe. No. <laughs> and that's why I actually meditate and I do that to kind of keep my mental hygiene 
but I think the biggest thing, one of the biggest things is um, that we learn is a lot of, if you talk about horror stories, it's about the governance and personality kind of things. Because we mm. basically opened up this place as a, a place where people can come. People come here for dedicated project visits. But, you know, one thing we learned is that without really sound governance and clarity of what people are doing, it turns into a Lord of the Flies situation pretty quickly. Like, mm. this is a place where it's like we're completely open to to experimenting and doing different things. But if you don't give people enough uh, structure, people go nuts. So that's kind of like the biggest learning. It's like you need governance. Like, I guess I would say I was more anarchistic natured before. I mean, of course I came from higher education. I was in a system, but when I kind of dropped out of society Mm -hmm. in some way to live on a raw piece of land as an independent thinker, I was like, yeah, you know, we want to be responsible. We don't want government telling us what to do and stuff like that. Adam, you're from Texas, so you're in the Texas Republic there. <laughs> but I do appreciate much more about governance. And like when you try to run a, an enterprise, there's got to be real clarity about operations yes. and what the rules that we follow are. So that's there's been a lot of learnings of how, how to do that because we've seen just con- like personal conflict. I mean, I was personally... Just to tell you, I was exiled. You can say exiled, voluntarily exiled. I mean, things got so crappy with with some of the the personalities that I just had to leave for like a month Mm. from my own house. I mean, that's crazy. That is. That kind of tells you like, you know, especially like with what's going on in politics, say about anarchy, it's like, no, we do need some governance. We got to have sound governance. We got to constantly improve it. So definitely this, this experiment here, the big challenge is going to be governance. How do you get people to collaborate and work together on this piece of land? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how do you do it in a way that's better than now? It's the same struggle in open source software. You're just not, you know, living yeah. in the same piece of land, right? But we have these conversations around codes of conduct and how we're going yeah. to conduct ourselves and do we need those? Do we not need those? Why, why do we have to have those? It's like, well, because some guardrails are nice to have because sometimes necessary to set expectations of how people are going yeah. to interact with each other yeah. in this area. And that's actually a necessary thing. And it's interesting that, of course, we find that in the physical spaces as well, but we deal with it so much even just in the digital spaces that uh, it's kind of there's nothing new under the sun kind of idea. Like, yeah, these are the same problems that you deal with with your neighbors and with your family and with uh, people around you. And then you go online and you deal with similar things. And, yeah, we do need some structure for sure. Yeah. So basically take what you know with the online communities, but then the, the extra layer of challenges. OK, but you're actually physically with these people. Think about it's harder to ghost. You know, you can just peace out yeah. of an online community and be like, eh, I'm just not going to contribute to this project anymore. Right. But when you live there. Mm-hmm. When you say these people, do you mean people that come to visit for a bit for a class yeah. or for a project and they're there for many weeks or months potentially because it takes yeah. a long time? Is that or do you mean like immediate family? It was more like in the early days when we started the project. Pretty soon, as I said in my TED talk, and people from all over the world began to show up. So we accept them. We basically invite people. Yeah, come on, develop this thing with us, build the tractor, build the next brick presser or whatever. And that's what I'm talking about. Basically, dedicated project visitors who were there for multiple, like a month or more. Mm -hmm. We kind of see that after three months, uh, that's kind of when they go nuts. Yeah, (laughs) It's like it doesn't go work. How's any serial killers or anything? (laughs) No, not yet. But <laughs> the thing is that unless you have a, a rigorous structure for so-called HR, you know, human resources, managing people, setting expectations and so forth, 
uh, people need that. And and me, like, you know, we're a lean team. We're just, just a few of us here. It's like I never provided that rigorous kind of leadership or, I mean, I would call just constant feedback or like babysitting kind of thing. Like if you're trying to do a co- coordinated effort where people are working th- to get on a project, you definitely need some significant infrastructure for management unless you're assuming that everyone is very evolved and completely aligned and completely collaborative, which is kind of not yet. I mentioned that collaborative literacy, I I think is very much undeveloped in today's today's society. So people don't know how to work together. Mm -hmm. So there's a real issue there. Yeah. The interesting thing too, while the, the communities are separate. So in your case, it's real world, you know, face to face, you get different problems when you are face-to-face, whereas when you're sort of digital communities, you know, you're in your own island, so to speak. You don't have to see each other yeah. face-to-face. You can, I suppose, commit to continuing to argue on the internet, which people do, but you do have the luxury of being able to walk away and have that separation. Whereas when you're face-to-face IRL, you know, like you are, you may not have quite that same opportunity. And so you're eating breakfast with them and eating lunch with them and there is no break. And so, and then you have little weird cues or ticks that might get you or just all these things that happen when you're in real space with people that doesn't happen mm-hmm. in the digital spaces that can really drive you crazy, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And we are setting this place up. Like we're going to basically run this as a school or like t- between tech school and, and immersion education programs so we definitely have to figure all this out. So we will need a community manager. We'll need a cook. We'll probably have staff, like people who actually are taking care of the facility, building things, growing food. Best example is like a university campus where you've got enough support staff that you yeah. can actually make it work. Do you have a, maybe like a town name? For, I know you have a business name and this idea, but did you mm-hmm. name your place? Is it, This is like, you know. Oh, the yeah. place you go is it is, what's the mecca name what's the name of the place yeah it's called factory farm it's not factory a factory farm. farm it's a factor e farm oh, where e is the exponential number it's a tr- about transcendence interesting it's a transcendental number so you got the open building institute you got this place you're at you got the the seed eco buildings you got the global village construction set which you're still working on a lot of stuff happening What's the next big horizon you're facing? I know you mentioned a couple of things, but what's the next big thing that uh, you're doing? And maybe even an invitation to this to this audience we have here to, you know, build their first home or, you know, give somehow. What, how do you see a lot of the listenership of this show kind of playing a role? Yeah. Well, I mean, the next big thing is you might say it's the next big thing, but it's all part of the Global Village Construction Set, which the finish line is 2028, where we have essentially an appropriate technology infrastructure, but actually bigger than that. We're d- developing these these machines, these artifacts, but what we're actually doing is developing collaborative design and development protocols that can shift the economy from proprietary to collaborative. That is a much bigger question. That means like you, you're AT&T or you're John Deere. You're not doing what you're doing with your proprietary research. You're, you're part of an open source effort that makes everybody better. So a more distributed world. The next thing that we're, we have is like, if you want to help us out, there's the big hackathon in August, about middle of August. That's going to be a big thing. We need a lot of CAD people, designers, graphics people, publishing people, because we're going to basically write the the big manual, the enterprise manual for how you build the seed eco homes. And then in, in September, 
We're going to do immersion where you actually learn to build the seed eco-homes if you want to build them. Or we're doing a longer program for three months where you're actually getting trained on how to be an entrepreneur or a builder building these houses. So that, that's there's a lot of activity there, which includes the that in, does include the tractors and the 3D printers as part of that infrastructure. So if people want to help out, sign up online. There's a We have an interest form for the Seed Eco Home. We're going to basically um, launch that as a public announcement probably by March 1st. So there's about six months before the actual uh, hands-on training. Uh, so that's a big thing. Or otherwise, buy our 3D printers. There you go. That's one product we offer uh, online right now. And you can do that at opensourceecology.org. Of course, links in the show notes, mm-hmm. the uh, TED Talk that Martin has given there, the Open Source Maker Factory Build Camp that he's talking about later this year is there, and other things, of course. And the product tab is there to purchase a 3D printer if you so want to, the pro or universal. Mm-hmm. Martin, thank you so much for sharing the story. It's very interesting to sort of cross that chasm of software into hardware, and I think you've helped us do that very well. Mm-hmm. And I like how it challenges people to think differently about you know, recyclables and reuse and responsible future and proprietary versus collaborative. I think this is a really interesting concept you've you've helped us introduce here today. So thank you for sharing your time and your ideas. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jared. This was great. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't heard yet, we have a membership. It's called Changelog++ because, hey, why not increment things? It is better, as they say. You can subscribe at changelog.com slash plus plus, get closer to the metal, make the ads disappear, and of course, support all of our podcasts. Again, changelog.com slash plus plus. And of course, huge thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We appreciate your attention. We appreciate you listening. And one more step you could take is to join the community. Changelog.com slash community. It's free to join. Come hang with us in Slack. Call this place your home. Changelog.com slash community. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.